Welcome to another episode of Beyond the Pasture, Grazing for Change. This week, we spoke with Mr. P. Wade Ross. P. Wade Ross is the Chief Executive for Texas Small Farmers and Ranchers, a community-based organization based out of College Station, Texas. He is a fourth-generation farmer and rancher on land that his great-grandfather purchased in the 1800s. The organization currently serves families across 52 counties through training education, outreach, and policy work. Join us as he welcomes us to Texas and details the historical founding of the organization, COVID's impact, the importance of generating hope and belief in Black farmers and ranchers, and the negative impact air property exploitation is having on the agricultural sector. Come join us as we hear all this and more from P. Wade Ross and how you can contribute to a better agricultural future for all. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our podcast series. Today, I am delighted to be introducing to you all and to be in the same space as P. Wade Ross. P. Wade Ross works with the Texas Ranches and Small Farmers uh, Community-Based Organization in Texas. And I'm just delighted to be in the same space with him to be hearing more about how he's supporting underserved farmers, particularly Black farmers in Texas. Good afternoon, Mr. P. Wade Ross. How are you? Oh, doing great. Uh, happy to be here. Thank you for allowing me to be on this platform. And uh, I think we, uh, hopefully I got some good, good things to share with you. Oh, yeah. Well, if it's anything like the conversations that we've been having off this recording podcast, I'm sure it will be. So, uh, well, people know a lot about us already here at the Wallace Center. So let's introduce them to you. Uh, yes. Uh, my name uh, is P. Wade Ross. I am the chief executive uh, for Texas Small Farmers and Ranchers. Uh, we are a community-based organization. Uh, out, uh, based out of College Station, Texas. Um, however, we are pretty much all throughout Texas, primarily in Central and East Texas. Last I checked, we, we've uh, served families in about 52 different counties throughout Texas. And uh, we do everything from uh, training, education, um, outreach is a big thing that we do. Um, along with a, a bit of policy work as well. Wow, 52 counties overreaching out. Texas is such a big state where so many states in the United States kind of fit within that uh, vicinity of it all. So just to be taking that on is just a tremendous uh, bit of work that you are doing. So I want to thank you all for that work that you're doing and the work that you personally put in every single day to do that. And I know it's in your name, which I think is, one of the amazing things about your organization that you prioritize that and it's included in your title. So I wanted to ask a little bit more about how the organization was founded, the history behind it um, and the creation of it all. All right, I, uh, I'm gonna give you the kind of the abbreviated version of it. Our organization was really just birthed out of need um, um, an observation. I am a, what you would call a, you may call a fourth generation farmer and rancher. However, um, there's been some gaps within those generations. Um, my great grandfather, uh, his name is Jack Ross. He and his brothers were runaway slaves from 
uh, South Carolina. They landed in Texas, and once they got to Texas, they they split up. Um, my great grandfather, his trade was as a blacksmith. That's what he did, and he did it very well, so well that he was given the opportunity in College Station to become the town uh, blacksmith and and to be um, able to obtain land. So in late 1800s, uh, we uh, he uh, purchased that land. Uh, ended up having to pay for it twice um, because he could not read and write. And uh, when he went in to collect his deed, they told him as such, it went out and cut down the tree that he used to notch, you know, to keep track of his payments. So he ended up paying for that land twice, never really lived. He didn't live to see the last payment made. I think my great grandmother, uh, grandma, uh, grandma Charity Ross made the last payment. So my dad grew up, uh, he actually was born on that land in the 40s, early 40s, his dad moved up north for work. And that's where he spent pretty much most of his childhood, the rest of his childhood and career up north in uh, Seattle, uh, where his dad worked in the shipyards. And uh, But his dream was always to get back to the land that he, he was born on. Uh, so in the late 90s, so that's about a 50-year gap of that land kind of laying dormant. Uh, he decided to go to move back to the land uh, that our family still owns as air property. And um, in doing so, he um, he was uh, his his profession, the way he fed his family was as a college administrator. So naturally with College Station uh, and Texas A&M being right there, he would go over and get, you know, the information he needed because, of course, he was a novice at, at farming and ranching. And um, the good news is he became well known as uh, a grass farmer um, in the Brazos Valley, which is where Texas A&M University is. The bad news is he always found himself as the only black guy in the room. And when he would go to the barber shops, you know, the guys, the, the black guys would kind of snicker and say, hey, there's that, you know, black guy from up north, you know, who's always hanging out with the white guys, you know. And uh, so anyway, to make, bring this all back full circle, he was like, hey, if these guys aren't gonna go show up, if not comfortable enough to get this information and to be in those same rooms where they need to get the information they need to make their properties and their farms the most successful, I'm gonna get to bring this information to them. And that's when our organization was found officially in 1998. And you talked a little bit about the role that you currently hold within this organization. I imagine it's very similar, if not exactly the same role that your father did back then, just in a different generation and with different challenges that we're facing here now in agriculture and in grazing. Um, so I wanted to ask how your role has shifted in these last couple of years and what you do now and how the organization has expanded because of that. All right. Well, my role has somewhat shifted in the last couple of years. I started out, so I've been with the organization from day one. When I started out our first 25 years, I really served uh, as a educational director. My background is in financial literacy and adult education, um, teach a lot of home buying classes, things like that, and wealth building. Um, also some estate planning as well. So 
would jump in anytime those things were needed. We would go all, all over the state, depending on what the project or collaboration we were doing to share that with uh, the underserved farmers, which tend to look just like myself. Many of them were, were black farmers. And that stayed pretty much the same all the way up to about COVID. And when once COVID hit, my parents who founded the organization, my mom, who I didn't mention, but I should have, because she's really the engine that makes made everything go. I mean, she really was behind the scenes, you know, putting everything together. Uh, if those of you who know what all that goes into a nonprofit, that was her. You know, she was she was that one. My dad was more of the face. But when COVID hit, um, it changed things because our main go-to when it came to outreach was in-person meetings. You know, we would go all over the state, sometimes rent out community centers and have, you know, these, these uh, events, which people love because it was not common. They would be able to congregate with folks who were just like them from similar backgrounds in the ag industry, which is not as common as people think. So um, that changed when the pandemic hit. Um, no one could go out. So, and my parents did not know a lot about um, technology. There was the true cultural divide, digital divide, I guess is what you call it. So I kind of stepped up, took the baton that my parents had already ran with and said, hey, let's go virtual. Uh, let's start doing the same things we always been doing but we're just going to do it via Zoom until, you know, this pandemic thing, you know, is over. And that turned out to be a blessing in disguise. So that's kind of how things shifted. We really leaned a lot more into virtual because Texas being a big, such a big place, it allowed us to touch so many different people in one setting like this versus, you know, packing, you know, our easel and our projector and going from one sit, you know, one town to the next. So that made it a little bit more feasible. The other thing that came with the pandemic is it gave us an opportunity to kind of take a step back and assess where things were at and where the needs were. And while we kind of were patting ourselves on the back for, you know, creating this great membership, you know, all across the states, we realized that there still was a dire need for farmers to monetize the land that they are. You know, we had a lot of farmers who were showing up at these meetings, but we weren't seeing the results when it came to them actually going out and being operational farms. So um, in these last three years, to answer your question, I went, I went the wrong way to do so, is that we have shifted now. The biggest shift is that we, we are really business focus. We're, we're focused on creating farm businesses within our community. Um, the other thing, is, which is kind of the what we were talking about earlier, is the shift to regenerative ag practices and some of the and understanding some of the benefits that we're keeping on the sidelines now is now becoming, you know, is becoming an opportunity for you to get in the game. So uh, that's some of the biggest shifts that I, that we've made. And in a state as large as Texas is with so many farmers having different needs and there's, I imagine a variety of different type of producers that you support, vegetable, perhaps some fruit uh, and livestock as well too. And all the work that people are doing at different scales, we're really seeing the importance of the work that you do, but also the challenges that arise whenever 
people are spread out so many miles apart, you know, so many counties apart and are focusing on different uh, producing needs and challenges and places in their organization. So I'm really curious to hear more about what you're seeing that black farmers in Texas need or are perhaps unaware of the opportunities out there like regenerative agriculture that has recently swept a lot of the granting opportunities um, in recent years here in the granting world and how you're supporting them. To really hit on some of the biggest challenges, um, I would I would have to stay, say that it, it all really starts with building hope, belief, and generating engagement in the Black farming community. As I stated earlier, that's a big reason why we even exist as an organization is that we noticed that so many of these farmers were, you know, seen but not heard and many of them weren't even being seen um, and that it's so important you know for organizations like ours and people don't talk about it you know texas is probably on paper has by far the most black farmers in the nation what people aren't talking about is those farmers aren't most of those farmers don't don't clear five thousand in revenue a year um, many of them, you know, have a farm because maybe it's air property that's in their family and they're farming. In many cases, they've got some cattle out there, but it's out there to keep the ag exempt bond so they don't lose their properties. Um, some of the barriers that are there are communication. You know, there's a lot of, we talk about regenerative ag. Traditionally, that's had a white face on it. You know, since it's been reintroduced, we know we all know that regenerative ag has been around for a long time. But since it's been reintroduced, it's had a white face on it, if we're being honest. And as I said earlier, many of our farmers are not comfortable going into those environments. So there's not there's there's a lot of times they're not getting the information, you know, that, you know, you would think that they're getting. Um, the communication piece of it, you know, is very important. There's a lot of technical speak that's involved and maybe that farmer doesn't speak that way, you know, maybe, and that can be intimidating sometimes. And we have to understand that. The other thing that we see is that there's a lot that's not talked about nearly enough in the media is the exploitation of air property. That has become the low hanging fruit um, for many investors out here, especially with, with some of the shifts that you're seeing in our economy and the big push and the big movement when it comes to food. Guess what? Guess who else understands that? Many of these investors and the easy thing for them to do is to use some of these tactics and they go after the air property. And USDA is probably the first to admit some of the discriminations that have got us to where we're at now you know, I just received a, a letter from someone who says they're, they're offering me $25,000, which you and I know is no, no real money. Therefore, now these farmers are not only fighting, you know, to learn the information they need to learn to become better farmers, but they're also fight, having to fight their own family. So that's a real thing. Uh, so again, building hope, belief, and engagement becomes a, it becomes a heavy lift for organizations like ours, if you don't have any examples of something that's going to be successful, if you engage in it, guess what? You're not quite 
is quick to engage or be on that webinar to find that information that you feel like you need. And that's kind of the state that we're in when it comes to some of the farmers that we support and regenerative agriculture. It's not that they don't wanna do it, it's just at the end of the day, they're in survival mode. And when you're in survival mode, there's certain things that aren't gonna be as important to you to invest your time and energy into, even though you and I know it's an important thing. Absolutely, it's incredibly important, especially now as we're seeing a lot of dominance, as you mentioned, in um, air properties being bought um, and also the wave of regenerative agriculture, which you've mentioned is so important that it's been here before. Underserved farmers historically have been doing a lot of these practices before, Latinx, Black, African, Indigenous, and other folks have been doing this work for so long on these lands. But a lot of the times, I feel like there's an expectation that folks should know how to do this work as well, too. And I know that we've talked a little bit about this personally before and uh, has led to what you consider to be the infancy stage of incorporating grazing practices to the Black farmers in which you support. So I wanted to hear if you could talk a little bit more about that, the difficulties perhaps, the challenges and barriers that you have faced as an organization in getting these resources out there and changing the face of regenerative agriculture so it can look more like the farmers who have been doing this work for so long? That's a great question. Some of the some of the barriers uh, that we're facing right now are things such as, you know, culturally and generationally, uh, which a lot of people don't talk about, but relevant information, you know, as far as incubator programs that these farmers can tap into. And when I say incubator programs, information on business development, on regenerative ag practices, as we talked about. Another thing is market access. Business 101, regardless of what you're doing, whether it's farming or, or you know, selling real estate, you know, business 101 is begin with the end in mind. So now, now we're coming to market access, you know. When I'm talking to a farmer, you know, especially a black farmer, they're going, hey, you know, why would I invest all this time and energy and I don't have an outlet to sell my cattle? You know, black farmers and ranchers, and I've experienced this personally, are discouraged from taking their their animals, you know, to where they can really maximize profits, such as a meat processing. You know, instead, we're forced to take them down to the local sale barn where, you know, the big boys are, are, are buying it on pennies on the dollar, and then they're taking it to the meat processing plant and, and getting those big dollars. And I've literally had, uh, my dad and I actually had someone tell us in our face, hey, this is not a, this is a, a rich man's game here. You guys are, are out of place. So that's, that kind of stuff really happens. My dad probably doesn't like me sharing that story with you, but we have to talk about that kind of stuff because that's part of the problem too, is that there's a lot of fear and discomfort amongst black farmers to even talk about it. Now they're talking about it amongst themselves, you know, at the barbershop and places like that. In many cases, they don't dare come into these platforms and talk about that. So a lot of us just don't know it exists and uh, but it's out there and it's very, very prevalent today. Trust me, uh, it's it happens all the time, which is unfortunate. 
and how does gracing look like in a state like Texas? You know that it's so different than a state like in the Midwest uh, that's been had gotten a lot of focus uh, in recent years in regards to grazing and with a changing climate that we're we're facing. Uh, Texas is a state that's been hit pretty hard uh, with that, as are others. But I wanted to hear a bit more about how grazing is in Texas and how it's changing and how you all are adapting to that to support farmers. All right, so how grazing is is a bit different in Texas. I have to be careful how I answer this. Uh, have to put a couple of disclaimers. I am referring to farmers that we support. Also know that there are a handful of farmers who do look like myself who are advanced. So when I'm talking, I'm not always, I don't want people to feel like, I don't want you guys out here who are making it happen, you know, feel like I'm, I'm excluding you. There, there are a handful of black farmers who have actually, you know, adopted regenerative ag practices, uh, including our family. As you, you can see here, my little microscope, you know, we're really be, we've really shifted into uh, biology based, but for the most part, um, just like I shared, it's it's been out of sight, out of mind, uh, for a couple reasons. One is the the age gap. Many of the the farmers, especially black farmers, have aged out. Uh, I know my dad, for instance. You know, he's not he's not super excited about having to learn a new way, and <laughs> not a new way. Of farming. We know it's an old way, but a different strategy than what he's been doing and mastered you know, over the last 20 or 30 years. That's not exciting to him. He's looking at his life timeline and going, ah, you know, let the young guys, you know, lean into that. So the problem is, is that with Black farmers, and all farmers I'm reading, but it's primarily Black farmers, the aging demographic, because it hasn't been an attractive line of work for a lot of the generations that have followed it. So, so we're not seeing nearly the amount of wide adoption that we would like. Now, the good news is our organization has uh, collaborated. We're about to launch a uh, project uh, with, uh, we collaborated with uh, HMI, Holistic uh, Management International, and we're going to roll out here shortly our we're going to pilot a program that goes in a few different phases. The first one is creating awareness. As we talked about, it's important to clarify the why behind the what, you know, you're not going to have farmers, you know, raising their hand to do regenerative ag. They're going to wonder about it and they may be curious and they may jump on a webinar here and there. But to get them to really lean into it, they have to be clear on how this benefits them. And and really the the benefit right now, the big benefit is glaring. It's that, hey you're now able to, you're learning a strategy in farming, which is what you love to do, that's going to allow you to cut costs, input costs, which is what's keeping you on the sideline anyway, make higher profit. And if you do this thing the right way and you learn it and do it the right way and you implement it, it's gonna allow you to rebuild your soil to the point where your soil is gonna be doing the farming for your soil and your livestock. So, oh, that is, yes, now you gotta kind of go deeper and really show what that is once you get their attention. But you can't just, you know, show up and do a topic, you know, cover crop, no-till, uh, paddock, 
transition, whatever it might be, you can't just do that without really going deeper on the why behind the what, including the history behind conventional agriculture and how we got here and why we need to make that shift. So that's something that's very super important to do. Good news is we got that rolling, we're launching it, and uh, we're gonna do it in a way where we're rolling it out first in phase one and then phase two, what we're gonna do is find the early adapters, people who are really leaning forward and we're going to really invest in making sure that they're successful and we create success stories that we can point to and then the rest will come. You know, Everybody wants to be on a winning team. Oh yes, everyone wants to be on that winning team, but as you mentioned that there are challenges even for that team to get there, have to build that resume, have to get that practice in, have to go and be in the big leagues but it all takes time a lot yes. of education a lot of hard work yeah and and it's unfortunately you know we've been kicked off of collaborations uh, our organization because you know everybody's shaking their head you know when it's time to write that grant saying hey we understand feel what you're saying but you know sometimes when that funding shows up you know things change real quick and we're finding not a lot of uh not everybody is willing to to hear what I'm sharing with you today and move forward on it. You know, there's a lot of other agendas that are willing to push organizations like ours to the side. I'm just being honest with you, but there's still so there's still a lot of work to be done in making sure that organizations like ours who are on the ground floor doing heavy lifting with these farmers are are being supported properly so we can continue the work you know, that we're looking to do to get the results with people who really truly care about seeing results. Yes. And when we're thinking about building the next great team, one of the focuses of that is ensuring that there, there are people that come after. And recent reports have noted that the average uh, farmer age in the U.S. is reaching, if not already, in the 60s. And as you mentioned, that's one of the biggest barriers that you're facing and black farmers adapting these grazing practices. And I know you do a lot of educational programming with, uh, for, within your organization. So I wanted to ask if you, within your program, are targeting those younger generations and getting that information to them about grazing um, and how you've been continuing to do that. So it would all be embedded in them and they can just pass that on and relieve you all of, of some of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we were actually able to do a summit and we called it Launch, Grow, Win. The purpose of the summit was to say, hey, you know, you don't have to go alone. Let's go together, but let's go because time is running out. The good news with that is we went back and looked at the attendee list and, and I would say 80% of the attendees fell within 16 to 55 years old, which was a was a wonderful thing for us. That right there is positive, very positive. We were able to, um, just this past weekend, send a group of potential leaders, because that's what we need to do. And that's what your question was there, Juan. You know, it's what, really, what, where are those leaders coming from, that next generation? So we did, um, we're able to send a group um, to a training up in Decatur, a rotational grazing training up in Decatur this past weekend. 
Um, and we're looking forward to meeting with them and seeing what's coming out of there. I've already received a few texts, people just so excited and thankful that that we got them there. So that's huge. We're doing a lot with the boys and girls clubs. Um, uh, we also, we just had big brother, big sister out to our learning farm, which is on our personal family ranch. We call it our learning farm for our organization. But we had them out this past weekend. Uh, the week prior to that, we had a group of special needs kids out. Um, and we're looking to really partner somehow, some way with community centers and school districts throughout the state of Texas to get that word out, because that, you're absolutely right. It starts with the, the next generation of youth and exposing them. We do these youth field days and the parents come up and they go, oh my God, you know, we finally got them off their cell phones, <laughs> you know, they're loving this. So um, pretty cool stuff. And uh, we really look forward to doing mo uh, more of it. We kind of were doing it just kind of in a trial phase. Hey, let's do this, let's do that. Let's see what kind of attendance and what kind of engagement we get. And we've been blown away. Um, so we do plan to lean a lot more into that now that we know that there there's you know large interest for it. Oh yeah, and you kind of already answered this last final question in some ways, at least the first part of it, but I wanted to ask, where do you see the Texas Small Ranchers and Farmers community-based organization going next uh, in the next 10 years? And how can listeners who are hearing this from across the country and the world support you? To help supporters, I think the most important thing is to lean into these kind of uncomfortable conversations. A lot of times we don't, you know, we're a society that loves to be <laughs> entertained, you know, but if it gets a little bit uncomfortable, we kind of shy away from that. And when we do that, you're often just kicking that can down the road. You know, you're you're not allowed to ask the question, why isn't things getting better if you're not doing anything about it? So we just need your support in every way. You know, lean into those tough conversations. It, you know, air property exploitation, again, is a big thing. That's something that needs to be on blast in the media, not, you know, the third page of your community paper. You know, it needs to be out front because we're already down to one percent of of black landowners when we're at zero we're at zero you can't you can't come back from that you know and that's real and, and it reminds me of the winter storm i think it was 2021 i should know this because i was on the uh texas winter storm coalition and i remember it was it was just after valentine's day and had this huge, horrible storm that engulfed the whole state of Texas. And it pretty much shut the state down. And I turned on the news and I saw a story down in South Padre. And the, the story really was highlighting how sea turtles, the population of sea turtles were, was going extinct and how the whole community rallied. And, and they were literally going into these frigid waters on the shores of South Padre Island in Texas. And they were going into the waters and pulling these sea turtles out, wrapping them up in blankets and, and put them in a nice warm gymnasium for a couple of years and nursing them back to health because they wanted to make sure that the few that we still have left were taken care of and that we didn't lose them. 
And I'm sitting there going, oh my God, you know, if we can do that for sea turtles, why aren't we doing that for human beings? You know, we know, we understand that it's there. Maybe we don't know about it. You know, maybe that's what's going on here. But we really just want to, you know, lean into organizations like ours who are on the ground floor. A lot of times money goes out of, of USD out of Washington, D.C. You see all these headlines and we go, really? Where'd that money go? Because our farmers aren't seeing it. So that's another thing is to make sure it's getting to organizations who are doing the real work on the ground for these farmers and who have the heart to do so. Um, I know from being in the community that um, on the supply chain side of it, and I know that's not what this conversation is, but due to some of the things that I shared with you, such as you know not being welcome at some of these processing plants, that many farmers also want the ability to build their own you know, manufacturing and processing plants and cold storage and warehousing and things like that so that they can start maximizing and also create some vertical integration within the, our, our rural communities as well. So those are some of the things that you can really support on. Um, let me know any trainings that are out there that I can share with our folks that you might be aware of. I'm always got my eyes and ears open for good information that's practical and that's plain. And even if it feels like it's a little technical, that's okay. I'm pretty good about getting the information and then vetting it to our, our farmers in a way that they can receive it. So uh, I hope uh, you guys keep me on that uh, speed dial or on your email list there. Love to know more about what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. We will. We will. And just to pull on one of the focal points there is how can black farmers in Texas start this regenerative agricultural practices of grazing and incorporating them into the daily practices to revitalize the soil and this entire important work and generational work that uh, in need of black farming in Texas if the resources and development is not there. And then top of that generation is aging out. This is a critical point in history to ensure that those funding, that those resources are being developed and that is what you are doing. And I wanna ask you, where can people, what's an email out there where people can reach you, when, uh, that they can give you these resources, support you in your work that you're doing? Oh, appreciate you asking. So um, we have an email, it's admin at tsrcbo.org. And then our website is the same, uh, similar, tsfrcbo.org. We do like to give people a place where they can go and find information on demand. So that's it. Thank you for asking. Thank you for sharing. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And now we hope that you have the resources that you need to contact Mr. P. Wade Ross and get involved and, and make the organizational dream and hope alive and keep it moving, keep it pushing. So thank you all for listening. Thank you, Mr. P. Wade Ross, for your time today. And we look forward to continuing uh, to stay in touch and hear more about the great work that you are doing. And we hope you have a great day. All right. Thanks for having me. And remember to be the exception. Take care. This podcast is made possible by the Cedar Tree Foundation, supporting the expansion of regenerative grazing practices as a strategy to improve soil health and address the threat of climate change. 
inspired by what you heard? Check out our show notes for more details on the people and organizations featured on this episode and visit our website at wallacecenter.org to learn more about our team and contribute to unique and important conversations in the agricultural space.